Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists bringing you the best of the business. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com and make sure to go to the website, subscribe to the newsletter and stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast. Now you can already hear it by the music, we're doing it a little bit differently this week. Today, our guest is Gerald Leonard, talking about his book, Workplace Jazz. He is the composer of this song in the background that you're hearing. And it relates to how he feels that jazz has its similarities with work in Agile. He has a couple of very interesting analogies. So I'm going to leave you to it. Let's hear what he has to say. Gerald Leonard, thank you so much for being here. How's your day so far? Sandir, my day is going very, very well. Thanks for asking, man. Awesome. Now, I came across your work in this book called Workplace Jazz. How to improvise nine steps to creating high-performing agile project teams. Before going into the beautiful um, synergy with jazz, tell us how you got into, um, into the music business. Okay, so so I, I actually started playing music when I was ten and uh, did my bachelor's and my master's in music, and uh, eventually ended up studying with a gentleman at Juilliard through the Manhattan School of Music for a year, um, playing a lot in New York City. Um, I played you know different shows. I played um, for church events. I played benefit uh, um, um, for benefit organizations, and along those lines. And so um, you know I had. I had a lot of experience performing and, and playing professionally. Um, I actually did some ministry work for a few years. And then um, after being married with kids, I decided I really didn't want to be on the road all the time. So I so I um, started doing IT work. and But I would play in the city uh, for shows, concerts, and various events. And I started noticing that there was a similarity between um, being in a great band or a great performance and also being on a great project team, some of the work that I was doing there. And over the my 20 plus years of doing this, um, a lot of the ideas kind of germinated. And I ended up writing my first book called Culture is the Bass um, around 2016. Around that time, the song All About That Bass came out. Um, and, um, and so um, I'd gone to a workshop with a, a gentleman named Willie Jolly, Willie and D Jolly, Willie is a professional speaker. He's like one of the top five speakers in the world. And his wife was a uh, educator and she had a master's in, in uh, education, um, but really smart. And she really helped me to kind of hone in that, you know, a lot of what I do with my clients is helping them change their culture. And as I st- step back and think about every project that we do, it changes the organization's culture, but also changes a little bit of their business model, depends on the nature of the project. But, um, but that led me to getting a literary agent and a publisher, um, and that's where the work workplace jazz came um, for for the things that I did with that book and the concepts. And so that book in, integrates um, the music as a metaphor. It integrates the ag- agility or uh, agile productivity, um, workplace culture, and neuroscience. So, and if you if you looked at the chapters, each chapter has a section on neuroscience about that particular. Uh, attribute or topic that I talk about, uh, because how our brains work uh, is a big part of it as well. And um, and so they've, I've kind of married those four things together to kind of create my platform of of how I ex- share my thought my thought leadership, 
but using my passion for music. Seems like you are a very diverse man, Gerald. Uh, yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> uh, going, going back to what you were mentioning earlier, you, you have a book called Culture is the Base. Yes. Now, these agile adoptions, agile uh, implementations require a huge mindset shift, uh, even the culture shift. Yeah. What do you consider the base of being the culture? Well, I mean, if you think about it this way, um, anytime you listen to great music, you always have a great baseline. I mean, think of any even popular song, country song, um, any any type of music, there's always a really distinct baseline that kind of captures your attention and the drummer and the basses are like in a groove, in a, in a pocket, if you will. And everything kind of plays around that. But it, but that cohesiveness of the of the bass and drums working together kind of pulls the song in. Well, what I realize is that companies that have great cultures, it's like having a great baseline. Um, when I think of, uh, I like to shop at Nordstrom or Nordstrom Rack, and uh, Nordstrom is a is a great you know uh, company. Um, uh, Ralph Lauren Polo, they they're a great company. Um, um, Amazon, it's a great company. I mean, and so they have a rhythm. They have a way of doing business. Uh, if you have a problem, you get back to them. They get right back to you. The, um, Zappos was another one. They they had a crazy kind of a culture. I know Tony Heist uh, passed away, uh, the CEO of Zappos. But, you know, and Amazon bought them because they had a great culture. Um, and, and they had a great culture because they, they thought a lot about who they wanted to be, what they wanted to express. And then they set up the guide rails around that. And then allowed their employees to work within those guidelines. And they found people who love that environment. And so I believe that culture is critical. And, you know, and I think the advantage being a performer um, brings to the table when I work with my clients is I think about a project the same way I would think about a performance, right? You have people on the front row that come to performance. But you also may have people in the balcony, right? And you have, and when you're performing, you have to think, okay, what's the experience for the guy in the front row? And more likely, it's going to be pretty good. But what's the experience for the person in the back row? And if you haven't, if you really don't think about it, it's going to be lousy. So as a performer, you really have to think about what's the experience for the person in the back and in the middle. Well. In projects, a lot of times we think we, we're, we're working with the people in the front row, right? The people that are right there in, uh, in the meetings uh, that we're dealing with, that we train. But there are people that are in the balcony of the project. Let's say, you know, one of my clients has over a thousand project managers across the state within America. And the ones who are far out, you know, maybe they're a couple of hundred miles away from the central office. They're like in the balcony. So, so when I work with my clients, I help them think, well, how are we going to make sure that guy, that person who's out there by themselves, that's looking at his watch and saying, I'm about ready to retire. I don't want to do this new stuff you, you're ready to do. How do we engage him? And by just asking those questions, it really helps us to think of a plan, a rollout strategy that encompasses everyone so that everyone from the front row to the balcony has a good experience of the project rolling out. Hence, we get more adoption. We address the culture. We uh, we we set the expectations of what the culture change is going to be, and people are able to adjust and adapt to that. And to me, that's a that's a um, a, a big paradigm shift 
and how you look at projects when you look at them from that perspective of the experience that people go through. That's a really interesting analogy. What instantly came to my mind, but that's just my, my creative thinking, is this is a great way of stakeholder mapping as well. Exactly. I, I just see this, this concert hall right away. How are you? How are those stakeholders being mapped over such a room? Now, for those, I'm not the most into the knowledge of jazz and how, how a jazz band works together. Could you take us through that? Sure. Well, and here's a great example that I, I picked up from. I have to give credit where credit is due. I picked up picked this analogy up from Victor Wooten. And Victor Wooten is a jazz bassist, five-time Grammy-winning bassist. And I had the pleasure of meeting him at a, at a Gerald Beasley's bass boot camp a number of years ago. And the guy's phenomenal bassist. Um, and in his first book, he described um, music as synonymous with language because Victor was the youngest of a number of brothers who played professionally. And so at age five, he was actually playing professionally. So how do you play professionally at age five? Oh, wow. Well, it's kind of like, well, how do you talk professionally, right? Well, and what does that mean? Um <laughs> So the way you talk is as a child, as a as, you know, if you think about it, as a little as a little child, you're growing up and you're hearing, you're constantly hearing adults talking around you. And pretty soon you begin to pick up on words and you begin to mouth those words. And it may be daddy or or mama or whatever. And you're and you're saying it in your own way, and it's pro- more likely not correct. But none of the experts around you make you feel bad for saying it wrong. In fact, they encourage you, right? Because they want you to talk. They want you to talk. And so music and jazz is a lot more like learning a language. It's like we need to first learn to, to learn the, the language of music and play music before we get into all the theory and the concepts and the constraints of, well, what is you know the theory of music and how do you play this in jazz and what is that lick and all those those theoretical things. We don't look at that until, you know, we don't deal with that with language until we're seven or eight, you know, maybe a little bit earlier, but five, six, that we start going to school and learning the alphabet. And then we learn the the forms of speech. But before that, what we're learning to do is speak, right? We're learning to speak. And so music is a lot like that. The way you learn jazz, jazz is a language. It's a way of playing over chords and, you know, you have a melody and you have a chord chart. And it kind of lays a foundation, whether it's um, Tonight in Tunisia or um, uh, Bob I Blackbird or, or, or even some of the modern songs that year, the modern jazz musicians play, uh, or taking a melody from a pop singer and, and turning it into a jazz song, like um, uh, Gerald Albright does the song from Luther Vandross called Amazing. You know, But then after he plays the melody, he then elaborates on that melody, playing over the same chord changes, the, the same framework, if you will. But now he's adding his own interpretation. Well, where did Gerald learn how to do that? Well, Gerald listened to a gentleman named Nat Adley or Cannibal Adley, and he also listened to um, I think it was a, a sax player that played with uh, with uh, James Brown, who had a much more funky sound. And Cannibal was very had a very was much more dexterous, and the other guy was much more funky. So Gerald has this unique sound, but that he learned from other people. And so a lot of my sound as a musician, a lot of musicians, all of us, we've learned from each other first because we had to listen and then we learn to speak the language and then we learn to play it. And then we get into all the theory and concepts. 
a lot of times people teach it the other way. They try to teach you the theory first, but that's like trying to teach a, a two-year-old a noun and a verb. They're not, not going to get it, right? They just want to know where's the milk. You know, where's, you know, I need a diaper change. <laughs> 100% true. And this is the same with these agile kind of concepts. Everyone wants to, uh, most people want to go through a theory and expect, hey, now we, we've done a course, we're going to be heading into the right direction. We understand, we know how this thing works. And I guess that's what you mean as well with this. You can try to explain someone how music is being read or how it's supposed to sound, but actually doing it, going through the motion and, and talking the talk is only going to help you move forward, right? Exactly. And agile, you know, just like jazz, and I talk about this in my book, agile is a mindset. I mean, there are, yes, there are theories around it. There's the agile manifesto. There are um, tools that you use. There's the sprints and the scrums and the backlog and all the, the technical things that we talk about, but that's kind of like the nouns and the verbs, right? But being agile is a mindset. Hence, I bet you if you were to go and ask all the companies that had to figure out how to stay alive once the pandemic hit and they had to get all their people to work virtually and they had to get systems in place within a matter of days so that they can stay in business, did you use Agile or did you use Waterfall? They didn't care. Just make it work. Exactly. They were like, we need, you know, we have to figure out something that we got to make work now. And so they use the methodology or process, whatever they had to do, and more likely they used a lot of forms of agile without knowing that they were doing being agile because they had to quickly communicate. They probably realized, you know, do we need the daily stands up? We probably need to talk every hour or every, you know, two or three times a day and kind of get on the phone. Hey, how's that going? Are, are the systems coming up? Do you need anything? I mean, so it became much more of a mindset than 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 a um a methodology and playing jazz you know is is really a mindset it's learning the language it's a mindset but the the other part to it which obviously everyone had to do during the pandemic uh, and adjusting to the pandemic is i think is one of the critical things is listening um you know when when we're working together as musicians and you're playing a song Obviously, everybody's spent time woodshedding or practicing, right? Developing that skill. So they're coming and they're bringing something to the table. But the most important thing is, is that once they get to the table, they're going, okay, we're going to create something much bigger than all of us. Well, the only way to do that is to listen. Okay, you know, the song starts off, okay, is he going fast? Is he going slow? Is he playing loud? Is he playing soft? Is he playing with vibrato? Is he playing it straight? Um, is he, is the line going up or is it going down? And so you start listening and you can actually close your eyes and listen to where it's going. And pretty soon, you know, you, you can feel where that, where that music is going and you start connecting on a, almost a spiritual level because now you're, you're in tune at a, in a different way with the person that you're, that you're performing with. And even with projects, if everyone comes to the table you know, a developer, a business analyst, the project manager, the 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 coders, the um, the, the the product owner, um, the 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 subject matter experts. If they all come to the table and they have their expertise, but they're going, okay, we got to build something bigger than any of us. We're going to listen to each other. Okay, so how do we get started? So the business analyst jumps in, and starts soloing. 
And they go, okay, let me take all these notes and let me develop the user stories. So you get all the user stories and the product owner says, I, it's tough for me to solo because I got to validate to make sure that this is actually going to meet our needs. And then once you do that, now we're going to start the sprint and the project manager starts slowing and it hands it off to the developer. And the developer says, now I got to write the code to make sure that we're delivering and everybody's now supporting the developer. And so it's just like jazz where you start off with a framework, a big picture of what you want to create. And then as the song evolves or as the project evolves, different people stand up and they have to take the lead. And once the developer's done and puts it into UAT, now you got the testers. They're Now they're soloing and they're taking the lead and they're giving feedback. But again, everyone has to listen and really be in tune and support that group. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And it's the same thing that happens in jazz. Now, how does goal setting, for instance, work with jazz? I mean... We have our sprint goals, we have our product goals, we have the vision, we know roughly where we're going to go towards. How does it work in jazz? Okay, so say, let's say you have a concert and you have three or four songs you're going to play. Maybe you're at a festival and you're thinking, you know, we want to play this song and we really want to get the audience. The goal is to get the audience up and moving. They might have come in from having a bad day at work or a bad week. Or maybe it's a, a, a benevolent or, um, uh, event and we're supporting cancer. We want the cancer patients to forget about having cancer. And so we're going to play music in such a way that they forget about their shortcomings, their elements, or these hardships they're going through, and they get caught up in the moment. Well, the goal is we have to create this, this moment, this, 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 this vibe. Well, in doing that, if... We're trying to all create that, but I come in and me and the drummer or the horn player, we got an attitude towards each other. There's a problem, right? So we got to resolve that because that's going to come through in the music where there's, these guys are not, they're not connecting. They're not jiving. They're not playing together because there's some internal tension. So we have to actually resolve that and get on the same page, create buy-in with, with each other and go, Let's put our differences aside. The bigger goal is these people need our help. Let's create an environment where we help them forget about their problem. And in the process, we actually kind of heal ourselves as well. And so goal setting is big when it comes to playing music, uh, depending on what the project is, depending on the nature of the song and, and what the overall outcome. But the biggest outcome is does the audience walk away transcendent to another place? And because music also has healing properties to it, where, you know, you're you're having a really, you know, down, dis distressed day. A lot of times what we do, we put on some music that kind of pulls us out of it. Definitely. Right? It's beautiful. And, and it's the and it's the vibes and it's the waves of the music. It's the neural science of the music. The the I mean, it's it's even down to, you know, um, what's the vibration of the music? Because if the music is vibrating at a certain frequency, it brings our brain to vibrate at that frequency and pulls us out of a depression. Oh, really? People use it in music therapy all the time. Oh, wow. And so people, so, so music is a very powerful tool and the commonality of the, of the, the things that are so unique about it can also be transferred into business. It can be transferred into project work. And that's kind of what I've done in the book is to take these concepts that, a lot of amazing musicians have done kind of naturally and breaking them down to, well, what is that? And how can we use it as 
project managers or as agile practitioners to 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 create a better experience for our team, to create a better product, and to create a better experience for our audience, our our stakeholders. Now, I do see. Maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic here. Most people play music because they want to, because they like to, because they want to be good at something else than whatever they usually do. Right. Not everyone that I get in classes or that I work with in business wants to work with this agile thing, this, this, I don't want to do this. I just want to do my code. How do you see this collaborate with, with jazz? Well, you know, so, so the idea of, um, I just want to do my I just want to do my coding, but I don't want to do this agile thing. That you know the the, the challenge with that is, um, you have to follow that you're you're going to follow a methodology, right? Whether you make one up and you're doing waterfall, or you follow no methodology, which is a methodology that you're making up, which is called ad hoc. Uh, <laughs> you're just kind of, and you're bumbling around trying to figure it out. And then pretty soon you're going like, we got to figure something else out because this ain't working. Um, but but the challenge for that is um, you have, to, one of the biggest things that musicians also do is they check their ego at the door. Good musicians. Um, I mean, yes, you do have some musicians that they, they play and it's all about them. They wanted to, you know, how, 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 um, how fast can I play or how, you know, you know, are people watching me? But musicians that really make a difference they drop their ego and they leave their ego at the door and they focus on what is the product that we're trying to develop and how is it going to impact the end user? And really, you know, for a developer or for anyone else out there who's listening and they feel like it's all about their code, it's not about your code. It's about you having the talent to build that code, but then to meet the needs of your client. I think Apple does an amazing job. You know, the Android products are amazing because, you know, and they've kind of spoiled users, right? Because they go and get get those devices from the store and they have like a little paper thin manual of how to use the device because the device is so intuitive that they open it up and it's like, oh, click, click. And, you know, I'm sending emails and doing things and apps and, 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 and whatnot. They didn't have to go and read a manual, go to training or do all those things. So they look at us and go, wait a minute. So why do I have to go to training for this software? Can't you do it like an, uh, why can't it be like an iPhone? And, and, and not all, you know, work products are like iPhones and, and Android. So that's a challenge that we run into as well. And, and, it's, and it's an expectation that we have to kind of keep managing and setting with the customers as well. But I think for the developers and those who don't like agile, it's, it's, it's a part of the process. And it's kind of like, um, I don't like, you know, being a musician and saying, I don't like playing scales. Well, the only way you're going to learn your instrument is you got to spend time on it. <laughs> Now, the thing, of course, with these smartphones is they gradually incre- incrementally have gotten into this state where if you look in the overall spectrum, they are relatively the same. So it's, yes. at this point, it's become common sense to use these these phones and these operating systems. And I think common sense is one of the most uncommon things out there these days. Yes. Having that said, um, I love how you have worked out or put a lot of those quotes in by famous musicians in the book. One of my favorites is if you're not making a mistake, it's a mistake by Miles Davis. <laughs> How does that work? 
If you exactly what that means is you're not trying. I mean, if you're if you're if you're growing, right, and trying something new, you're going to make mistakes every time you say I want to learn something new. You're st- you're starting over as a as a uh, as an infant, right? As as someone an infant within that within that realm. You may bring a lot of other experience, but you're starting something new. And and here's something else. You have a lot of people that say, "Hey, I'm I'm really interested in growing." Well, guess what? If you're interested in growing, that means you're interested in constantly changing. You can't say, "I'm going to grow, but I don't really want to change." That doesn't work. If you're gonna if you're gonna learn something new and apply it, that means you're gonna grow. It means you're doing something new, which means you're going to make a mistake because if you're constantly growing and changing uh, uh, and changing and trying new things, you're not gonna be an expert at all, everything new that you do right up front. And so you're gonna make a mistake or two here or there. And so the idea behind that quote, and the reason I liked it, is because if you're not as a musician growing and changing and developing and you're not making mistakes, then you're not, that's a mistake because you should be making mistakes and learning from them and then growing and then making other mistakes and growing. And so then you're getting better and better. The mistakes become fewer and fewer, or they are there different types of mistakes that you're making, but you're playing at a level that the regular audience would have no clue that you made a mistake. Oh, that would be every concert, every concert you go to, Someone on stage makes a mistake. Never think about that. that. Every concert that you, every concert, every performance that you've ever heard, someone made a mistake. Now they're just playing at a level that you, as a regular listener, couldn't pick up on it. My they know ears that don't they've hear done it. their best, but you know, because because all none of all of us are human, so none of us are machines that we're going to perfectly perform something perfectly every single time impossible no, you're going to slide and hit a wrong note it's all about how do you so if i hit the wrong note what do i do do i stay on that wrong note maybe because maybe if i hit it a couple more times you think it's the right note <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna do my work so horrible it seems good exactly i'm gonna, I'm gonna you know I, I, I hit that wrong note and it's right next to a good note so i'm gonna go back and forth and pretty soon the audience <laughs> is like Oh, he meant to do that. That's a pretty, that was really cool. And it's like, yeah, that was a mistake, but I had to, you know, I had to, I had to make it into something. Every, every jazz musician has done that. And that's, um, I guess that's the epitome of the improvisation. That's improvisation. Exactly. Uh, It's learning how to t- turn your wrong notes into the right notes. The word improvise says, uh, is written in capital letters. It's an acronym yes. in your book. Yes. What does the acronym stand for? So the acronym for improvise stands for imp- um, to improve for for I, the um, the um, was it the M stands for measure measure what matters the um, was I have I, I'm, I'm looking at my my cheat sheet here on my laptop sorry <laughs> no worries. even though I wrote the book um, for P is for positivity right uh, the R is for risk the F is for Uh, feedback or uh, open to feedback. The O is for uh, for open to feedback. The V is for visualization. The I is for inspirational, being inspired by aspir- being aspirational. The S is for support, and the E is for execution. And so each of those chapters, I focus on, you know, a uh, 
a business professional or another musician that demonstrated that in their lives, as well as a famous jazz musician that demonstrated that characteristic in their lives. Like for positivity, I wrote about um, Phil Perry. Phil Perry, for the longest, was a backup singer. Um, but he kept a positive attitude because he realized, I'm a backup singer. I want to become a frontline singer. But right now, I'm being called to be a backup singer. But people are calling me because they like my singing. And I'm adding something new to, I'm adding something to their record that that they couldn't add by themselves. So they're calling me. Well, that led him to becoming a lead singer. And now he has 10 albums and is in the uh, R&B and Jazz Hall of Fame. Simply because he kept a positive attitude when he was in the shadows. Right? Um, uh, support. Uh, there's a friend of mine uh, uh, that I met at one of the base boot camps with Gerald Weasley and, and uh, Victor Wooten. Uh, name is David Dyson. Well, David plays for everybody. I mean, he's played with the Backstreet Boys. He plays with Gerald Albright. He plays with Jonathan Butler. He's recorded uh, you know, just tons of albums. He's uh, he was the he's the music director and uh, basis for Pieces of a Dream, um, the jazz uh, jazz group. And again, his band has been nominated, is in the uh, Jazz Hall of Fame, and he has two uh, Grammy nominations. Um, but in the book, I have a link to a performance that he's doing. So if you go to that link, you'll see him performing up in Detroit at the R&B Hall of Fame where they were inducted. They're playing a song that he wrote. Throughout the entire song, he never takes a solo. He simply plays the bass. The, the guitar player plays a solo, the horn player plays a solo, the piano player plays a solo. Everyone around him, his whole role was, yeah, I wrote the song, I'm the main guy, but my whole role in this song, for, for, for it to sound right, is for me to support you. And so each of those, each of these um, methodologies are, 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 are um, acronyms, are, are principles, if you will, kind of stands for a component of jazz that you know I, I've used real live musicians to demonstrate uh, the execution. I wrote about uh, Hans Zimmer. Now he's not a jazz quote unquote jazz musician, but he's one of the greatest music um, composers uh, and film composers of our time. He's amazing. But what's more amazing about him is not just his brilliance, but how he pulls a team of brilliant musicians around him gives them instructions on what his what his vision is and then lets them figure out how to bring that to life. And so when you hear Batman or you hear um the different movies that he's done um uh, it's the music is amazing he's kind of created the score but he brings his musicians together shares with them the vision of what he wants and then let them interpret it and bring their genius to, to the orchestration or to the recording. And, you know, we're all astounded by the movies that we go see that where Hans Zimmer is the composer, you know, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, he wrote the music for that. I mean, he's just, he has over like a couple of hundred movies, blockbuster movies, but it was all about execution. And here's a perfect example of a brilliant composer using an agile mindset, getting people who are really good at what they do, giving them direction and then letting them go. Let them do their thing. It does require for for one to be able to take a step back, saying, "Hey, what's what's really need what what needs to be my place in this play, whether that's development or in jazz." 
do I need to be supportive here or do I really need to have all the spotlights on me? And that, especially the last part can be really hard. That's my experience. It's, it's hard. If you, if you, it's hard, it's hard. It depends on your mindset, right? Um, If you write a song and you're working with great musicians and you realize, you know, the baseline that the piano players recorded that works. There's nothing needed. We don't need, I don't need to pop. I don't need to solo on it. I don't need to do anything. In fact, we're just going to use that one. Now, there was one of my songs that I did that with. In fact, it was the song Workplace Jazz. I wrote that entire song. I wrote it with the piano player. Uh, the, 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 uh, but then I, I recruited, uh, and I got him to recruit because his name is Donald Robertson. He's a Grammy-nominated producer. He knew Phil Perry, who I wrote about in my book. And I'm thinking, right, during the pandemic, everybody's sitting at home. So I get this, I get this wild idea. Hey, what if we can get Phil Perry, this R&B Hall of Fame singer who's done 10 albums, to sing on my single for Workplace Jazz? So you can go to iTunes and, and, and download and listen to it. And it's a jazz song called Workplace Jazz that's, 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 uh, that goes along with the book. And I wrote the music, but I'm not playing on, the, I'm not playing on that song. The bass that's playing is my piano player, is the piano player, because he had created such a cool bass line that I thought, is there anything I could add to that bass line to make it do anything different than what he's done? No. That sounds amazing. I'll include the link in the in the in the show notes as well that people can check that song out. Yeah. Now, before heading to uh, the, the closure of this episode. Yeah. What has been your biggest lesson out of all your music experience? I would say the biggest lesson I've learned is to, to be a lifelong learner, to be a lifelong learner. And I'll share this experience and I'll be quick about it. In 2018, I had a major bout with vertigo and it wasn't the regular vertigo where you kind of get dizzy and it clears up, you know, they do the physical therapy or whatever. Um, Mine actually what it wiped out what's called the vestibular system, which is your balancing system. I literally came home with a red walker and I lost the ability to walk on my own. Oh wow. I spent a week in bed and this happened six weeks before I delivered my TEDx talk. How did you recover? <laughs> and so I laid in bed for a week. And I'm thinking about my talk, and my talk is called What If Practice is a Performance? And it's the neuroscience of music. And I'm thinking about my quotes, and one was that if there's brain damage, if you're a musician, by work, by practicing or playing music, the brain will activate the networks and work around the damaged area and repair itself. So I said, well, what do I have to lose? I'm, I'm going to figure out how to deliver this talk in now five weeks, and i got to figure out how to walk again and how to get myself back up again. And I went, as soon as I could, I got and went to my office. I grabbed my bass and I played for about an hour sitting down. And then I got back in the walker and came back and got in bed and I was exhausted. The next day I noticed that I felt better. So the next day I played for two hours and I started slowly being able to walk without the walker. I could hold onto the walls. And then pretty soon I didn't have to hold onto the walls to, to walk in the hallway of my house and so on and so forth. Within three weeks, by the time I went to my doctor's appointment, I was walking unassisted. And it wasn't until after they did all the tests 
that he said, in my right inner ear nerve, I lost 86% capability. I only had 14%. And he, he looked at me, he goes, I don't even know how you're hearing. And I said, well, I'm a musician and um, I have a TEDx talk and, and I share what I was doing. He goes, oh, you've already started your therapy. <laughs> and I had that started doing therapy, the physical therapy for neuroscience or the neurological therapy that you have to go through when you have an accident like this or issue. But I kept playing and I kept just forcing myself to walk and I kept looking at, I had to actually rewrite my speech and, and wrote the song Vertigo, which is also on iTunes. That's at the end of my TEDx talk. And when I, and, and, and from that, and I'll just share this real quick here from that, every time I stand up, I go through, it's, I have something called vestibular neuropathy, which basically means every time I stand up, my, my, my uh, balance system has to catch up with the fact that I'm standing up. So I always have to pause, let it catch up. I have a little lightheadedness and then I'm fine, but that's part of life. But I had to learn. And because I'm a constant learner, I, I just learned everything I could about the the issue. I learned everything I could about how music plays a part of it. And um, I learned more about neuroscience. And it's actually helped me to be a better writer, a better consultant, a better musician, because I use that challenge as another um, springboard for additional learning and growing. That's an astounding story, Gerald. I never really never heard of this that it could be so impactful on the, the way that you can. Oh recover. yeah, and, and and I was lucky because there there are worse repercussions to where you literally are are when they said my doctor told me I had a disability afterwards, and I said okay, you know, I just kind of took it as is, and you know, you got to work with it. I don't have a, you know, I don't I don't think consider myself disabled. I just consider myself as there's a, you know, you have a neurological challenge or a challenge that you, you, you learn to deal with and you learn to work around. Um, but, but it, it can be crippling to where, especially if it happens in both ears and, you know, you you can't get your balance back and everything around you constantly is bouncing because your, your, your equilibrium is totally thrown off and that's the rest of your life. So there are people who are, who, who came out of it and ended up being way worse than I have. So I think, so I'm thankful every day that that i have what i have but it keeps me grounded keeps me humble keeps me realizing that i'm mortal that that you know we only have you know we only have so much time that we what we have and what we have to do with what we have is to make a difference in people's lives i think whether that, it's to our knowledge information or whatever i think that's a very profound way to end this this episode i really love that part and last question where can we find your work? Where can we find your music, your TEDx talk? Where can we find you? Um, there's a couple of places. One um, is a new project I'm working on, which will be a new book. And it's called ProductivityIntelligenceInstitute.com. ProductivityIntelligenceInstitute.com. And you can always go to GeraldJLeonard.com. And you can find a bunch of links to different things there as well. To my books, to my music and so on oh perfect i'll include that into the links as well gerald thank you so much for being here definitely put me into a couple of different perspectives and i'm definitely going to try to steal the uh the concert hall stakeholder mapping i think that's going to be, be very useful in a couple of different situations here and there good good i'm glad it's a, it's a, it's a great it's a great um um mind uh framework to to, to leverage to th think about our, our stakeholders and our audience exactly thank you again so much for being here have a great day and talk to you soon okay. 
You too, man. I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye-bye. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up. So make sure to tune in again. Until then. <laughs>